my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Trey Green is a media executive, journalist, culture writer, poet, and entrepreneur who has written for publications like The Guardian, HuffPost, BuzzFeed, The New York Post, and The International Business Times. Trey is also founder of Black and Media, a space he created to fight for, quote, accountability led by those who've spoken out and those who have yet to share their own stories about being Black in the media industry. Trey joins me to share his experiences as a writer and a Black gay man. And if he permits, I will ask him about his love of Janet Jackson. So um, <laughs> welcome, Trey. Thank you. Thank you. And yes, you can ask me about Janet anytime. Okay. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Yeah, again, thank you for joining me. It's exciting to uh, meet great creatives and professionals like you. And yeah, just to kind of center us where we're at, how are you doing and how's your week been? This week has been pretty busy. It was one of those weeks where I had to just tell myself to sit the hell down and breathe. And not in a bad way, but just so much happening. And I feel like the new year, it always, we think the beginning of the new year is busy and hectic. The mid part of January is when everything hits. So this was a hitting week, but today is lovely. It's beautiful outside. So I've been taking it mad easy today. Where are you based? I am based out of many locations. So I was based out of New York for basically 10 years. It'd be 10 years this year. Um, but then I'm from North Carolina. I've been bouncing back and forth and really just taking advantage of um, some of the flexibility that has come with the pandemic and just a change in our lifestyle. So I've definitely wanted to make a point to, to go home a little bit more than I have been. Now that you keep talking, I do hear your accent. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It'll pop out occasionally. No, I like it. I mean, we all have accents, but I have a cousin who married someone, I think from South Carolina. So okay. he's always picking up things. <laughs> we do our thing. I heard you guys have your own barbecue. We do. It can get intense, the conversation, because, you know, you have like your vinegar base and then the other bases. I don't cook, so uh -huh. I don't know all the makings of the barbecue, but it can get intense with the discussion around what barbecue works and what doesn't. Okay. Now, you mentioned bouncing back and forth. Would you describe yourself as a digital nomad? I would. I would say that my degree is in video production, hmm. and then I ended up shifting to writing, you know, kind of digital editorial mainly. But yeah, I've always lived in different places of digital expression. So, you know, I do collage art. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been getting back into that recently, you know, always online and on boards, printing off stuff or flipping through magazines. I used to love Legos when I was growing up. That was my big thing. I've accepted the fact that I like to do a lot of different things and it is okay for me to be someone that pulls from different inspirations and pulls from different skill sets versus at times I always felt often, I was like, okay, do I just need to focus in? Do I just need to focus on my writing and that's it? But I'm like, no, I like to design. I like to creative direct. And even with like black and media, I'm able to do it through that. And it's been really, really rewarding to see the end product. 
Well, you know, you're one of several people that I've talked to either through this platform or just in my own life who are creatives who say that we kind of cross different uh, genres when we're creatives. And that kind of makes me think of like, you know, the triple threat, actor, singer, and what's the other one? Dancer. So maybe that's just something organic with people who are more inclined to be creative. Yes. The good part is the conversation has definitely shifted a lot over the last, let's say, decade to where owning the fact that you're more of a generalist than kind of siphoned in and siloed in. I think that's helped a lot of people really kind of own the fact that I like to do a lot of different things and Mm. tell stories in different ways, however that may be. I like the word generalist. I might have to remember that one. (laughs) And also with me working in editorial, since a lot of times I was working in like trending news and breaking news, that's what I've had to be just even in my nine to five. But it's it's a great skill set to have. I tell people all the time, we're all generalists. You know, we do have our specialties, but... If you sit down and you think about the fact that, okay, even in pop culture, what are your favorite artists? You have more than one favorite artist. So you're pulling from different inspirations. So, yeah. I don't cook myself. Well, I'm learning to say that I'm open to uh, walking into the kitchen more. But in what you just described for the holidays with family and, you know, aunt so-and-so will say, well, I do make this, but you make that because you're good at that. You're good at sweet potato pie. I'll do the turkey. It's not that I can't do those things. It's just that, like you said, we all have our specialty, but it doesn't mean that we're not able to do other things. Very true. So true. Yeah. I saw on your Instagram posts, one of your recent ones about new year's resolutions And I actually really liked it and I agreed with it because it's not something I've seen in print. But yeah, if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Self-awareness is something that I have had to learn to lean into very heavily. And part of my self-awareness is realizing that I have opinions that counter very often what I would say popular culture throws at us. And one of the big things that at times can irk me is just this idea of what success looks like. And we don't always hear a counter to very, I just say like really by the book and very stereotypical platitudes. I hate platitudes. I'm like, no, these don't work. So that post was inspired from me seeing, you know, I'm scrolling through and just seeing all of this, you know, new year, new me. And I'm like, we're in a pandemic. People are tired. We're having to juggle so many things emotionally, physically. I'm like, some people probably are not worried about New Year's resolutions. It's okay if you don't set them. But my inspiration for even writing that out was more so owning for myself that's how I feel and realizing that I'm like, somebody else probably needs to hear this too and realize that your approach to when you start your new year or how you approach your successes or how you want to reach those successes, that's hundred percent up to you. You know, it's, it's part of the social media driven space that we live in. You feel bad sometimes. I think that am I not doing enough? You know, for me, I don't feel bad because I have a capacity. There's a limit for me. And once I reach that limit, I got to sit down, but I really wanted to just write something that I hoped would inspire other people to realize that it's okay. If you don't feel like making a resolution yet, It doesn't matter what month you start. We're always evolving. We're always working toward whatever we want. I just wish we would hear that more often. But what sells is 
what's been normalized in our culture and what's normalized in our culture is work, 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 you know, drive for your goals. Even if it's breaking you down inside, it'll be okay. Cause on the back end of it, at least you succeeded and achieved. And I'm like, what is achievement if you feel like shit? Yeah. If it's okay to read it or part of it, the part mm-hmm. that I wrote down that I liked is that quote, you do not have to start pursuing new professional or personal development goals in January end quote. I think that just summed it up for me. And I like what you just said too, about like guilt, or I know for me, I stopped doing them years ago because for who I was at the time, it put a lot of pressure on me to do all these things when it probably wasn't time to do them. Right. I can have a goal and I can work towards it. I can be focused, but I know for me with resolutions, the challenge emotionally was that by mid-January, as you mentioned, or a little bit later in the year, it was like, oh my God, I haven't achieved losing 40 pounds. I'm a loser. <laughs> it's like, no, just work on it every day. My therapist, one thing she always, you know, would tell me, be kind to yourself. When I have those moments where I'm kind of questioning, am I doing enough? I always think of her saying, just be kind to yourself. And that always level sets me. And then I'll think through, well, damn, I did this, this, and this, this week. I'm definitely doing enough. I would love for our culture to shift and offer more space. Our day-to-day lives are completely different than they were two years ago, and they will continue to be. And I really do hope that people will lean into what works for them and own that. But it takes time. It took time for me to even get there. You just reach that point where you say, I'm going to do what I want to (laughs) do. Yeah, I like that. I'm just sitting here and we're not in the same space, but we can see each other. I can still feel this energy from you. And I feel a serenity. You mentioned like a self-acceptance and it sounds like you are encouraging yourself to work on yourself a little bit every day, but is this as a result of the pandemic or were you always this way? On a macro sense, I will say it's been a result of the pandemic. That year, 2020, and just with everything that was coming in, I had put on the back burner so many things I wanted to do, including my freelance writing, Black and media-like projects and ideas I had, even something as simple as working on videos for my Instagram page. And I love fashion and I always had ideas that I wanted to do. I was always hiding behind something or I would push it off and be so wrapped up in my work and, you know, just kind of my lifestyle in New York where, you know, you're going out, having a good time, just doing the things that you do, you want to do. But Once the pandemic came and it's kind of like that whole cliche, you know, we had all the time in the world, you know, we were all at home and just kind of finding free time to kind of pour into whatever we wanted to do. And for creatives, I think, again, there came that pressure of, you know, you need to write that book proposal and do this. And again, for me, I realized we're in a pandemic. Like, I'm not going to put that pressure on myself to write this new amazing thing or kind of make this life-changing business plan. But my version of that was really just, what do you want to do? I tell myself that all the time now. What do you want to do? Do you want to film a reel today? Do you want to send out some freelance pitches? What do you want to do? And I would say in a pandemic, me making peace with what I want to do, that's when that started happening and in a very large way. And I started putting into action ideas that I have been sitting on for a decade. Wow. 
like black and media was loosely an idea I, I would say in different iterations I have been working on for probably about five years I'd always love writing I never really leaned into culture writing or freelancing until 2020 it was just kind of overcoming that you know a little bit of fear like this is different can I do it and then once I did I was like oh, like I could have been doing this not knocking myself but just realizing that remember this, like any other time you're kind of questioning what you want to do, don't, unless it's something that's dangerous, then do question that. But yeah. when it comes to like the creative things, I've had to learn to push myself, but I'd say the last two years have been very transformative for me. I've seen the fruits and seen come to life ideas that, like I said, I have been sitting on for so long. I've been able to just meet so many amazing people through sharing those gifts and trying to grow them more. Earlier, you said gift, and you said something about, I think, not beating yourself up. And my experience in the last couple of years is like, it's still about my own timing. And mm -hmm. somebody could say, I have this gift, but it's when I'm open to accepting that in a complete way that it becomes magical and becomes real and it becomes something that can be of use, which sounds like what you're doing now. That's so real. And I think the timing part is just... That's probably the biggest lesson I've taken away. I could sit and I could, you know, ride myself for why didn't you do this if you had an idea five years ago? But then I realized I wouldn't have been ready. It wouldn't have turned out in the way that it did until I was truly ready to do it. And not just ready mentally, but also skills wise and comfortability, confidence, like all those different things that are going to make whatever you define success as. Those are pieces that also go into creating a success for you. It may not work in the way you want it to or the way you envision, but it's going to work. Being in video production and then Instagram, and you mentioned aesthetics. I'm a graphic designer. That's what I did for a long time. Interestingly enough, I feel that I'm growing more in it with working with this platform. But when I saw your work, I was like, oh, this guy is putting thought into this. I like the music. I forgot to mention, I like the background music that you have for some of the things I saw, including the one for New Year's. Okay. There was just things in it that let me know. It wasn't like you just woke up and you, you know, snapped a picture and posted it. It was like there was thought and planning in it. I could tell that. Well, I'm glad that you saw the vision and enjoyed it. I'm so visual. I've always loved magazines. That was kind of my first lean into, I would say, media, what turned out to be my career. I love the visual pieces of the magazine. So the editorial photo shoots, the cover lines and how they design them, even like the collages. Elle is one of my favorite mags. And I would just be obsessed with those collages to the point I started doing collage art myself. The visual is just such an important part of any story that you're telling. And you know, as a graphic designer, like colors, everything is tied to emotion in some way. I think the fun part about it is, you know, we evolve. So even with like my personal pages and kind of how I express myself there color wise, it's something that I probably came up with in like the last six months, but like, I love it. I'm like, oh my gosh, once I figured it out, I was like, okay, this is it. This is what I've been trying to figure out for years. And I finally got my finger on it. I and mean, with like black and media too, how do I want to express this visually? I always remind people as well as myself, we live in a time now where, you know, they say like with TikTok, it works so well because everything just looks very not produced. Yeah. If that is your aesthetic or what you like, lean into that and own it. But do not feel bad if 
you want to curate your page still. Do not feel bad if you have and you live visually in a different way. And I know I do. And it's more so just because I want to tell a certain story. And I can't do that if I don't kind of plan out and think through visually what it's going to live like. So yeah, it's been interesting to follow the conversations around curation and very much like well thought out strategies when it comes to visuals and graphics and design. You look at magazines and all these other places where that stuff, it still matters. Like that stuff definitely still matters. Thank you for saying that because I had someone recently say, oh, your stuff feels a little too slick. They were kind of basing it on like the TikTok culture. But I agree with you that anything that we see that is lasting or that really influences society, there is thought and planning, even if it doesn't look like it. Right. There's still a science, there's still an art to it. And that's, again, what I saw in your post. This wasn't just like this guy grabbed his camera and started twerking. It was like you thought about it <laughs> and not to knock that necessarily. No, right. I'll ask you a little bit later if it's okay about Black and media, but I just kind of want to talk about, because I discovered you through your piece last September, September 2021 in The Guardian. Um, why is Hollywood still denying Black queer love stories? Why do you think there is a denial within the entertainment industry to share more of these stories? I think part of it is access. I don't like using the word mainstream, but on the larger platforms and studios, television networks, I think that Black queer men, Black gay men are not in places to where they can even try to advocate to see these stories happen. They're not in situations where they can advocate as far as casting to say, oh, how about we make sure that there is representation of a black gay couple? One of the big pieces is just access. And we know there's so many layers to that as far as black folk in Hollywood, black folk in TV production, black folk in screenwriting, black folk in film production. I think that when you take it down to another level, as far as the stories themselves, it's not that there aren't examples of Black gay couples, because there are. But I think that the conversation probably comes down to mainly marketability. And that is, in a lot of cases, what drives decisions that are made in studios. Those are the two big factors that I think play into why there is still just this absence you know, the crux of the piece is the fact that we're just doing it ourselves. We're telling these stories ourselves. But when I think of like the larger networks and television studios and things like that, there's a lot more levels and issues at play to why we just aren't seeing ourselves. We're not seeing our couples. It can be very confounding at times. When you talk about marketability, are you saying, because I've heard some people say, oh, well, this won't transfer outside of the U.S.? To be specific, when I say marketability, I am saying, who would buy into this show? If you're thinking of a series, I guess you could say that may be centered around a Black gay couple, for instance, who would buy into this show? How can we sell it? When you think of like a PR perspective, who cares? Can we make money off of it? Because that's what drives productions anyway. You know, that's what drives the industry at the core. Is the show going to be a hit or not? We are marketable. That's no question. We know we're marketable. We know that there is a huge opportunity and a very, very large missed opportunity 
throughout the industry when it comes to telling stories specifically about Black gay men. In the piece, you know, I was saying that, you know, Black gay love stories is still a love story and everybody loves a love story. Everybody loves romance. Even people that say they don't. In most cases, they love to hate it. You know, you love to talk junk about it. There's definitely a means to cross over. You can look at something like Moonlight. When you think of the markers, the kind of commercial markers of success, Moonlight reached the pinnacle of the commercial marker of success for a project. And that project was centering Black queer love. Across identity groups, people care about this story, cared about that Moonlight story specifically. It touched folks. It was a beautiful film. Very much so. If a studio is resting the risk, for instance, of taking on a project centering Black gay couples on its marketability, that would be an example that you could point to and say that there is opportunity here. The actress Erica Alexander, a few years ago, I saw something where she talked about that, like they would say, oh, well, this won't be marketable. And she kind of pointed to a lot of things that you just said. And they're human stories at the end of the day. And for me personally, it's like most of the content, especially before, say, the 90s, I was watching was produced and made not for people that look like me, but I could still see myself in a lot of those projects. For sure. I like to in the piece, you know, you referenced Moonlight, you referenced the logo series Noah's Ark, which I think you said their first successful series. Yes. For a lot of us, it was the first time, especially for Black queer men, that was our first time really seeing a show that centered our stories. Again, just the level of success that that show had, they still did not get the marketing support and the different elements that probably would have made it even a bigger hit. They weren't able to receive that at the time. From the network, you know, you sit and think they were successful. They made a mark on pop culture, even without all the trappings that go behind pushing a show that a studio may want to work or network may want to work and see do well. I always just love the fact of having these opportunities to see the variety and the diversity of what Black gay love is. It's not this DL narrative that can oftentimes be annoyingly presented as the norm. There are infinite ways that Black gay love exists. It's very powerful to be able to get our stories out in, in multiple ways. Especially with a creator like Patrick Ian Polk, I saw his 2000 film Punks, mm -hmm. which was another great project. For me, for where I was at that time, I was like, like you said, oh my God, showing us in our varieties, our different ways we represent ourselves as far as our attractiveness. You can very much get wrapped into just being very, very frustrated when you realize just all of the systems that are in play that temper the reach of our, our stories. You know, this piece is specifically focused on Black gay couples. This is a whole demo, a huge demographic. If it's a money thing, we're here. We spend money. There've been a lot of white-centered gay productions that people love. And it's like, I know it will work for us too. <laughs> it would definitely work for us too. I most recently came back to the U.S. Uh, was for two years between England and Sweden. But the first time I left by myself in 2008, I was in Spain. And that was my first clear awareness that our Black media projects First of all, they're all over the world. I wish I could blast that out everywhere. It shocked me how influential we are all over the world. 
the music, you know, the ways we influence and fashion uh, vocabulary and speech and language. I bring that up because that goes back to it's not that we are not marketable, that we can't be marketable, that there is no interest in our stories. Even to say influence to me, it undervalues how much just reach Black culture has. And pop culture is now completely steeped in Black gay culture. So like the lingo, the sayings, there are so many things present that came from Black LGBTQ community. And, you know, decades ago, you know, like reading and shade. The tea, I heard that recently, right before this call. Yeah. Yeah. That's been living for decades in our community. The impact is there. There's no question about it. You know, are we just on a loop, which seems to be the case of we'll get our one moment every 20 years to have a story told on a larger reach, a network with a large reach. Otherwise, it's more of the same where we're just having to do it on our own. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, honestly. Like one of my new series that I love is For the Boys. I actually mentioned that in the piece too. This works because they're able to shape these characters and shape these stories and not necessarily have to worry about any powers at play outside of the creative that they see for themselves. Mm-hmm. The marketability is tied to what they know is marketable, if that makes sense. That series is done very well as far as just, like I said, the reach. Technology has offered us a means, thankfully, to be able to continue to create on our own and find avenues to get these stories out the best that we can. The uniqueness, at least for Black American culture, is we find ways to get around all the BS. (laughs) We have to. We have to. Otherwise, we ain't moving nowhere because that BS ain't going nowhere. We've talked about Black queer love, you know, specifically between two Black LGBT protagonists. I think your article mentioned that a lot of times we just see when it's a Black man, Black gay man, he's always in an interracial relationship, which is not knocking that. But why is that the majority of what we see? When you think of our culture, you know, American culture, we can just be very specific and say like Hollywood. There is a lack of possible awareness. Who do we see with this character, the Black gay character? You know, in a lot of cases, how many Black gay men our folk are in the spaces where these decisions are being made. I've seen a lot of threads with commercials and and other places where you're seeing couples presented and that absence, it still exists. So I think for me, I think it's partly just, um, I won't say a lack of awareness, but a lack of work to realize that, okay, there's another story here that needs to be told. There's a lack of, again, access to people that could advocate to make sure that that representation is in some way present, Mm -hmm. we're not in the room to advocate. We're not in the room to ring the alarm and say, maybe we could make his husband or his boyfriend a black man. Mm. When we were talking about the marketability, I don't know if the value of a black gay couple is recognized. We can have our Twitter threads and call it out there, but are the people that are making those decisions, are they seeing that thread? Most likely not. I think that there needs to be almost a reshifting of the value system of what type of characters are people interested in? What type of couples are people going to buy in and love and care about? To me, it makes no sense that there is no ensemble cast show of Black gay men. You think of how much we drive culture. We've had a good amount of shows that have your ensemble cast of, you know, Black women, which is dope. 
But even there, our culture is living in that too. What Pose was able to do, when you think of like voguing, clearly we knew about it from our culture, but as far as pop culture, it literally was a wave of Pose-inspired elements to music videos and just so many conversations that were driven by that show. So yeah, it, it can just be very confusing to me why. Where is the series? Where is the show? And that's when I say, okay, so there's a lot more at play here than clearly even we can course correct on our own. Mm. We focus more on that community because of the power structure within the industry. But what about our support from the Black community? How do you think that can help or how does that factor into why we're not seen or why we don't have more images of ourselves or positive images of ourselves? There's still a lot of work that needs to be done when it comes to conversations around queerness. We're being honest, there's heavy presence of homophobia, heavy presence of biphobia, transphobia. Black folks were marginalized already. Then you take the LGBTQ community within the Black community. We can face issues of marginalization even within our own community. You know, that's just the nuance of identity groups. When I think of it from the sense of a show, television series, films, Black gay stories, I think that it's great that we have shows like Pose, which to me, the power of Pose was the historical elements of it. The fact that our Black queer history, our history was being exposed, yes, to all viewers, but then also a lot of Black heterosexual viewers that probably may have known nothing about Black queer history. I think that that helped open conversations. And I can think even with my friends, a lot of my friends, like the things that we were able to talk through and questions that might have been thrown my way that came out of just watching episodes of that show. I think part of that is recognizing and continuing to have conversations as Black folk about, okay, homophobia is real in the community. It is what it is. Like we have to accept that. We don't have to accept the BS that comes with it, but I think it's important to recognize it, call it out name it. And as you're having those conversations, then you can add the nuance of, do you also realize that there's a lack of black gay couples on the show? You know, I think a lot of heterosexual folk, they're not a part of our community. You have black gay men that are your friends, black gay couples that you love and adore. So you scream to the rafters too. call it out with us that this is not okay. I like that you bring up the conversation aspect of it. Yeah, because that's been my experience with shows like Pose. It has sparked conversations with my Black straight friends. One of the things it's sparked a conversation around is this assumption that a lot of them thought that because they know there is an LGBT community and there is power within that community, the assumption was that, oh, we just thought you guys were okay because you have your community, not realizing that there's these intersectionalities and these nuances. We're dealing with homophobia in the Black community. We're dealing with a lot of racism in the LGBT community, too. Yeah, I do like that these projects have been sparking those conversations and making more Black uh, straight people where like, oh, I didn't know you guys experienced racism. And it's like, yeah, it's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, yeah. If only you knew, you know, just 
the different ways that it presents itself. Everyone that I talked to for this piece, we all have our differing views and kind of in a lot of cases, our differing solutions and approaches to how we, we want to fix this. But we were all kind of saying the same thing where we have nothing to prove. Being on a network that has a huge, large reach, that doesn't validate the stories. That doesn't validate, in this instance, the importance and the beauty and the value of Black gay relationships. But damn, it'll help getting the story out. That was one of the takeaways that I love was that it's like, okay, we know we're great. But just being able to have a little bit more reach and a couple more eyes, which we saw that over like the last year, once the whole reckoning happened, you know, a lot of show episodes were very much focused around police brutality and the talk. We've seen this on ABC series and NBC series and these big shows with huge followings and viewerships, very much kind of driving conversations in those spaces. You know, sometimes I would question, is this performative? And <laughs> But then I would look and say, you know what? It's still important. I think it would go a long way to even just see on a larger scale and how many households could we see a Black gay couple embracing or a Black gay couple just sitting the hell down and talking about how damn tired they are at the end of the day. The regular stuff that we do when we talk about, you know, everything isn't attached to trauma. Or sex, or the act of sex, yes. We live our normal lives. But, you know, I think conversations like this and what you're doing, I believe it's still helping. Yeah, I hope so. So with you as an out Black gay writer, how has that been? As I have lived and loved and just better learned to understand myself, it has been fine. I don't leave with my queerness. I will let people know very quickly who I choose to love or who I choose to date is the least interesting thing about me. It's just a part of me, an extension of who I am. Because, you know, when you think of heterosexual people, we're not sitting here saying, you know, the most interesting about you is that you are straight. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> By any means, that's not to knock folks, you know, what your work is, and it, it is completely centering queerness or the LGBT community. Hell yeah, that's important. That has been the backbone of us getting our stories out, just being able to be visible in a world that forever wanted us to not be and continues to want us to just be in the shadows. But I think that it's important to kind of reframe the way we speak about our queerness. So like for you to ask me, how has it been? It has been fine because for me, I'll let people know. I write stories and opinion pieces for my community. For instance, I don't even want to say his name, but a certain rapper said something very dangerous and ignorant. It was rooted in no level of truth, understanding regarding HIV. I said, oh, no, 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 no. This is not okay. I said, I'm writing an opinion piece about this. You've given me another tool for self-love when you said that, you know, straight people, they lead with what they do, their passions, in addition to who they love. Yeah. When did you discover your passion for writing? I'd say in elementary school, I remember I had to do one project that was based around a poetry book. When I tell you I went off on that poetry book and like when I go back and read through it now, I am like, oh my gosh. I was doing it. My little fourth grade or third grade self, I was dedicated to telling stories, not even realizing it. But once I got to 
high school. There are essays I remember writing when we got topics and prompts that I was really interested in. I can think of that being a time where I was like, okay, maybe this is something that I do well. I ended up studying video production in college and undergrad. And I really never tapped into my writing until I started working. Once I realized I didn't want to go into video production and then I moved into like online, you know, digital editorial, that's when I realized I was like, okay, I actually am kind of good at this and I enjoy doing it. So maybe this is what I should focus on. But I would say over the last, what, year, year and a half is when I have rediscovered my love of writing. And that's been through pieces like this and just doing real culture writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I did see some of your work for HuffPost. Oh, throwback. <laughs> <laughs> uh, throwback. I've worked at several outlets. I'm trying to describe the beauty of things. Even with this story, I'm trying to describe the beauty of these Black queer men making a decision to say, F these norms of what is considered success, I'm going to make these stories anyway. I think that's beautiful. And it's risky. And it is really putting yourself on the line as a creative. You look at somebody like Lamont Pierre, and he was one of the people I interviewed in this story. He built his own streaming network (laughs) based around these beautiful stories that he tells through his shows. He has so many series on his streaming network. Like that is his power. So who was Trey growing up apart from your gift of writing? I was definitely a very inquisitive, creative. That was something very, very early on. I used to go with my mom because my mom, you know, she would get her nails done and her hair done every two weeks. So very early on, I was like, these things that I am told culturally at that time, you know, this is not what boys do. And this is what you shouldn't be interested in. Very early on, I realized, okay, like I like, I guess you could say what people would label as glamorous things, you know, pretty things. The whole transformation of going in the salon and getting your hair done and, you know, what she comes out as or what new hairstyle she has always fascinated me. Music was my big thing. My mom worked at a HBCU, Federal State University. I used to be obsessed with the band, but I would love the band because of the dance line, the flat girls, and just the, all the sequins and the shine and the hairstyles, like all of these elements. And now that I look back and over time, I realized I was like, okay, that was already letting you know kind of the creative direction and like art and design, fashion and style. Early on, those were kind of signs that that was probably something I was going to eventually lean into. I was a little shy very much kind of to myself. I was only child at home. I have a sister, but she was older than me. So I was the only child at home. So I had to find ways to keep myself entertained. And I would play with my Legos and I would watch a ridiculous amount of TV. I used to get in trouble all the time for watching too much TV. I would be very silly with my family and goofy. But if you put me in a situation where I didn't know anybody, I would clam up. And that still is something that I've had to work on and work through, even as an adult. Very much protective of my space and myself and just always thinking, like always trying to figure something out or tear some shit up or reorganizing my closet as a fifth grader. Why am I reorganizing my closet? (laughs) I would just be doing random shit. 
And like I sang, I was in like this children's choir. Okay. At church. I sang in church, but then I also sang in this, it was called the Charlotte Children's Choir. We do like performances all around Charlotte, North Carolina. I love the music so much. Like Sister Act 2 was my jam. And that's where my love of music came and like entertainment. That's always been something that has fascinated me. Like the power of film and music and TV. This thing that I think is unique across the world with specifically gay men is to us, it's, it's more than entertainment or mindless entertainment. It's a world. It's our safe space. Yeah. As kids, so many pieces built to break us down. Don't like this. You need to be more manly. Just all of those ideas that can just chip away at you. That's why this story, I'm glad it got picked up it kind of took me back to that mindset of realizing like, okay, this is an issue we're facing. This is something that's chipping away at our reality as black gay men. We're not seeing our own damn relationships that we're in, have been in for decades. Film and TV is an important avenue for representation for people across identity groups. I always say entertainment educates. It's also a way of accepting oneself more personally, because for me, even though I'm, you know, a full adult, when I see a movie like Moonlight, it still feeds me and enriches me and gives me permission to say to myself, even if I don't say it to anyone else, like, I am okay to love who I love, what comes naturally to me when it comes to love. Definitely. It's so necessary. Can you talk about your organization, Black in Media? Yes, I can. Black and media is probably the one thing I am the most proud of that I have done, largely due to the fact that it has presented a means for my work and what I do, where I've chosen to focus some of my skill set on as far as a writer, being in the media industry. You know, I've been in media for well over 15 years now in some form. Black and media, it was a way for me to really connect the Black media professional community, just build a line and build a foundation and build a place for us to really just own our greatness. Hmm. In 2020, May 2020, when there was the whole media reckoning, which was an extension of the racial reckoning, which is dealing with so much police brutality and then killings of Black folk, so much death in our community. And when the media reckoning specifically happened, the core part of the media reckoning for Black media professionals was people just calling out all of the toxic elements of work environments that they've dealt with. Microaggressions, pay disparities, all the things we knew were existing, but we hadn't necessarily called it out in that way. The one piece that would cause me a little bit concern, we got all these Black writers getting bylines, all this focus on Black trauma, Black businesses, a lot of the outlets that were even featuring these Black businesses, Black business lists and how to support, I know from these stories, there are not even any Black people on your teams. There are no Black folk on your fashion and style teams. There are no Black people in your C-suites. There are no Black people working in your production crews and such things like that. It was just very jarring to see this huge influx of all this Black-centered content that at its core, a lot of it was trauma-based. Right. I was just like, where is the place where we're talking about the dope shit that we do? Where is the place that we're talking about the fact that even though we have historically 
and I'm saying in media specifically in this conversation, but historically in the media industry, we faced racism, we faced inequality as far as pay, like all of these things that we know are true, but we still have told black stories successfully, creatively. And I created Black in Media really to be a means to celebrate not only our traumas and us having this opportunity to finally share our truths, our truths in a major way, but to celebrate the fact that we're creating Black stories through all of this trauma and all this crap. And the content is amazing and it's great. So we had Black in Media Day, which was on July 16th. And that was just more of a social campaign where people share stories that they've created that in some way tie to the Black experience. And, you know, I'll have like, for instance, if you work in PR, then what is maybe a story that you pitched to an outlet that got picked up? Then this year, we still did Black in Media Day, but we also did a summit in 2021 where we pulled together several Black media professionals across different areas of the industry. We had like a panel on podcasting. We had a panel on freelance writing. We had a panel with Gia Peppers and she's like an on-air host, dope. And we also just had a panel that was talking about like the future of Black storytelling and being Black in media. So it was very celebratory. Our tagline was Black trauma-free and Black triumph abundant. And we also do career workshops too. There's a professional development leg with it. So with media professionals, is that exclusively for writers or is that anyone in the media? When I say Black media professionals, I'm talking about anybody that creates in a form of media. I definitely try to make people understand that it is a wide umbrella of who we consider to be our Black and media family. My takeaway from what you shared is that with the reckonings that you mentioned around racism and how these organizations or individuals were posting all of this support or whatever you want to call it is that thank you, but we've always been here. And it's important to say that. Don't think anything groundbreaking was done by giving us a month of Black content, just only for it to dissipate and turn back into what we're used to as far as the numbers of Black content in about two to three months. It's like we find ways, we find ways to shape shift. And, you know, that's why we've created all these amazing genres of music and other art forms that have transformed not just our sense of ourselves, but other communities too. Exactly. I have one last question. It is not the most important question, but please take your time before you answer. How are you preparing for the Janet Jackson documentary? (laughs) Let me tell you... I've been watching Janet YouTube videos. Like my favorite album's The Velvet Rope, but my favorite tour was All For You because I just remember watching the HBO special. At the end, I almost cried. Every Janet thing I can consume right now, I'm taking it in. Robin Gavon, she gifted us with a lovely allure story, Janet's allure cover that just came out. My life right now, it is dedicated to who? Jesus and Janet. (laughs) And that's where we're standing right now. My high school friend I'm staying with, he's a huge Janet fan. And he showed me last night uh, the piece that was done, the New York Times did about the Super Bowl. Yes, yes. How that just changed her image and her career. There were so many things that came up in it that I wasn't fully aware of. My opinion is anybody who's lasted in the music industry for more than 30 years is a good business person. Ain't no question. She is a true, a true icon. And just as a Black woman, it is never lost on me. They just face so many challenges and 
again, just like black and media, they still overcome and make dope shit. And seem to be the ones that really empower people. I had an allure piece that I wrote about Afrofuturism and how black women artists, they are the vessels of Afrofuturism when it comes to music. Well, thank you so much, Trey. I really enjoyed this and, and I learned a lot too. And thank you. No, this was great. And thank you for seeing this piece and just offering it another opportunity to have legs. And I'll definitely get the word out through my own social media. And speaking of, where can we find you online? I'm on Twitter at my name. So Trey Green, T-R-E-Y-E, T-R-E-E-N. I'm also on Instagram at Trey Green, T-R-E-Y-E, G-R-E-E-N. I would encourage folks to check out Black and Media as well. Blackandmedia.com. This is like my first podcast I've ever done in this way. So I'm glad that I could do this here with you. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.